I'm going to bring our Bible reading to us this morning. So please pick up a Bible on the seats next to you. We are turning to Romans chapter 2. It is a longer passage this morning. And we're jumping into a long argument that Paul is making that's going to reach its conclusion at the end of today's passage. And if you've been here in previous weeks, you'll know that up until this moment, Paul has been arguing that our God shows no favoritism, but he will judge us all according to what we have done. And so now we are going to jump in. Chapter 2, verse 12. Let me pray. Today, as we read your word, Lord, may we hear your voice speak the truths that we need to hear. Amen. Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, When Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? For you say that people should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then... If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. 
such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so then you must be pr- you, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Well, good morning. Uh, My name's Andrew. I haven't met you before. Well done on making it here to the Tramping Club. Uh, Please, um, at the end, uh, be loving our kids' church leaders by um, grabbing your kids on time. They're doing an extra shift this morning. Uh, with things uh, uh, running a bit longer. Um, Why don't we pray and we'll get stuck into this part of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for uh, your word and uh, that it tells us uh, the truth about you and the truth about ourselves. Lord, give us soft hearts to hear hard truths uh, so that we might respond rightly to you and to the gospel of Jesus. And we pray this uh, in his name. Amen. 
Uh, people have done studies recently, and 93% of us think that we're above average at driving. Does anyone here want to put their hand up and say that they're below average at driving? Probably not. Uh, now, I'm not great at maths, but I know that 93% of us can't be above average. It just doesn't work like that. Uh, but it isn't driving. 83% of us think we're better than other people on our team at work. 83%? 85% of us think we're better in social situations than most people. Uh, 25% of high school students in America think they're in the top 1% of their class. <laughs> and this is my favourite. Uh, 7 out of 10 blokes think they're above average at sport. Uh, this is what psychologists call the illusory superiority or the above average effect. Uh, we as humans, we tend to overestimate our positive qualities and underestimate our negative qualities, especially when we're comparing ourselves to other people. It's a real thing and we do it all the time. Uh, men, average, on average, overstate their height by 1.2 centimetres and women, on average, understate their weight by 1.4 kilos. Now, if I was to ask you, tell me how good a person are you out of 10? Give me a number out of 10 for how good you are. Uh, if you could compare yourself to the rest of the world out there, what would you give you? Give yourself. I mean, you're here at church today. You, you even made it like here, like on a Sunday where things are not usual. Most of us, we probably give ourselves a seven, maybe a six. We overestimate how good we are compared to other people, don't we? Almost all of us do it. It's a rare person who sees themselves as worse than those around them. But Romans chapter 2 and 3 ought to give us pause for thought. Uh, so far in uh, the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul has taken us to look at that window of the world. And imagine we bring, not these windows, you can't see out these windows, but imagine he's, he's taking us to the window and he's pointing to the world outside and he's pointing uh, to the overflowing rebellion of humanity. And remember back to chapter 1, verse 29, Paul, he points out the window and he shows us, verse 29, they have been, become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, strife, murder, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They even invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And Paul shows us this broken world because of the wickedness of the people out there. And as the original readers would have been uh, kind of reading this letter out loud, you, you can imagine a, a room full of people kind of nodding along, cheering Paul along. Yeah, that's right, Paul. All those wicked people out there. That's what's wrong with the world. And you know what? Yes, I'm glad God's judgment is coming because they're going to get it and they deserve it. But then in chapter 2, Paul steps back from the window and we start to see our own reflection in that window. And we start to realise that Paul's not just talking about the big bad world out there, but he's now showing that that same wickedness can be found right in here. And because part of you was thinking, I wish so-and-so could hear that, that I wish so-and-so was there to, 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 to hear what God had to say so they can get their act together... Uh, that part of you that sits in judgment over other people, that, gives you, that part of you that gives yourself a seven rather than a two, that part of you shows that you're guilty as well. We saw that last week in chapter two. Uh, those who judge the world for their wickedness, well, Paul says they too will be judged. Uh, chapter two, verse one, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, 
you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You see, the reflection of ourselves in the window, the the window that showed us everything that's wrong with the world, that reflection comes back and we see more and more of ourselves in it and and it's becoming more and more clear. And in today's passage, Paul, what he's going to be doing, he's going to go around, he's going to close off the final loopholes. He's going to shut down the remaining reasons why why we might think that we are not in that picture, why we, uh, he's going to shut down the remaining reasons for, for us to think why we might be the special ones to escape the judgment of God. Uh, And to borrow a little bit from last week, uh, the first reason is uh, we will not escape the judgment of God because God shows no partiality. God shows no special treatment. Uh, Paul says that in chapter 2, verse 11, God does not show favoritism. Uh, God is like the perfect parent. There are no favorite children. Uh, I know that parents don't have favorite children, but there are certainly ones that get on their nerves more than others. Uh, When you front up to God on that last day, There is no name you can drop. There's no special card you can flash. There's no club you can belong to. That means he's going to give you special or different treatment on the day of judgment. God's searching judgment will cut through with complete impartiality. And he'll judge you and he'll judge me based on what we have done. There are no favourites. And Paul makes this crystal clear. And he, uh, he kind of, as he does that, he kind of drops a bombshell that, that this includes even the Jews, even God's chosen people. Romans chapter 2, verse 9. Verse 9, there'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. First for the Jew. No favoritism. Even the Jews, even God's chosen people, are included in his judgment. Now, that was unexpected. Now, see, up until this point, the, the Jews are probably cheering Paul on. Yeah, Paul, you tell those dirty, rotten Gentile sinners, you tell them that God's got what's coming for them. But suddenly, Paul drops the Jews by name into the whole discussion. There are no favorites in God's family. God's judgment, he says, will be based on truth. It'll be inescapable. It'll be based on what we do. And there is no way you can claim special treatment. That's why from verses 12 through uh, to chapter, eight verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, uh, Paul is closing off these final loopholes. You see, Israel, the Jewish nation, God's chosen people, uh, they thought they had two grounds for special treatment. Their rules and their rituals. Uh, The rules, that they've got God's law, that they've got his word. And the rituals, the things that they do, they they practice circumcision, which marked them out as the people of God. They thought that these two things in particular made them superior, that the rules and the rituals, that they will give them a leg up, that they will be standing in a better position on the day of judgment, if not escape it altogether. But Paul says no. Have a look there in chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law and the embodiment of the knowledge of truth. You see, for the Jews here, trying to get off the hook, uh, they might want to point to the law. 
that, that, that they possessed the commands and promises of God, that that was a sign of their special relationship with God and the covenant and having, having God's law, the, the, the very words of God delivered to Moses by angels and that that word there set them apart from all the other peoples on the earth. That was part of who made, what made them who they were and they were proud of it. And so they're saying, Paul, surely possession, we've got the law, possession of the law counts for something. Surely God's going to treat us different because we have his law. But Paul says, no, having the law won't save you. Possessing the law won't save you. Uh, In 2013, uh, Volkswagen, you know, the big car manufacturer from Germany, uh, they put out a shiny press release saying that they had set themselves to the goal to become the world leader in environmental protection. They were going to set the standard. Their new diesel cars, they were going to be cutting-edge technology and they were going to have emissions reductions that you, you couldn't believe. They were so committed to caring for the world and for wider society. And behind that shiny press release, there was an extensive kind of environmental policies and procedures, rules that they set for themselves uh, that, they would, that would set them apart from every other car manufacturer in the world. That's 2013. Fast forward two years, and some engineers discovered a nasty little trick had been played. Through some clever software, Volkswagen was able to put their cars in a special mode just for the emissions test. Uh, When it was being assessed in the lab to test the emissions, uh, the computer that controlled the engine would tweak things so the output uh, of the emissions uh, would ace the test. But in reality, when you drove that car out of the showroom and took it down the highway, when you're a regular punter driving under normal conditions, the emissions were actually 40 times higher than what the car could pull off in the test. For all the rules... For all the regulations, for all the policies, for all the pride and the moralising and the greenwashing, Volkswagen were intentionally cheating the system. Knowingly selling cars that polluted 40 times what they claimed. Just because you've got the rules doesn't mean you're going to follow them, does it? Just because you've got the rules doesn't mean that you have some special exemption to do what you like. And Paul says, Jews, just because you have the law, it doesn't mean that you follow it. It doesn't mean that you live it out as it ought to be lived. Verse 13, for it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. It's those who obey the law. And Paul will go on to say in verses 14 to 16 that even there are Gentiles who will instinctively obey the law, even non-Jews have this sense of right and wrong, so much so that, that, that Israel will actually be more accountable for how they lived because they had God's law all along. They don't even need to rely on their instincts or their conscience. They've got it written there black and white, God's holy and perfect standards. But they still don't live up to it. Mere possession of the law is not enough. Perfect obedience is what's required. I wonder if there's a slight warning here for churches like us who have a high view of the Bible. We have God's word. We read it every week. Uh, We value listening to it. 
and examining it. Is there something that creeps into our hearts to think that because we're a Bible church, we'll be better off on the day of God's judgment than everyone else? Well, we have the word, but like God's people, we don't live by the word. Having God's word is not enough on the day of judgment if we think it's going to somehow get us favorable treatment. See, how did the Jews go? Verse 21. Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Now, Paul's rhetorical questions here, they give it away, don't they? Their lives don't line up with the law that they preach and that they teach. They don't Uh, They might talk the talk, but these guys don't walk the walk. And remember, God's judgment will be based on what? Verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. So for the Jews to merely have the law, it doesn't matter. They will still sit under the judgment of God because of what they have done, because of how they have lived. Uh, Now, the final loophole that Paul closes off is that of rituals. Now, if we do the right rituals, God, will that be enough to please you on that judgment day? Will that get us some special treatment in your heavenly courtroom? Now, the ritual that set uh, the Jewish people apart from all the other peoples uh, was circumcision. Uh, It was given to God by Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. It was performed on all Jewish males when they were eight days old, and it was a sign of God's covenant promises to his people. It defined their special relationship between, between God and his chosen people, Israel. And for the individual Jew, it was, a, it, was a, it was a physical sign that they belonged to that covenant and chosen people. Uh, and so this special, this special ritual, it marked them out as the people of God. And so, so surely that special ritual will get them like, at least a foot in the door with God on Judgment Day. What does Paul say? Verse 25. Circumcision has, some val- has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law... You have become as though you had not been circumcised. See, Paul is making the same point again. Merely possessing the ritual is not enough. But judgment will be based on what we do. It will be based on our law breaking, not our ritual keeping. And of all people, the Apostle Paul, he was the one who actually knew this best, right? Uh, He knew this personally. If you... um, Uh, Have a look in uh, Philippians chapter 3. Paul outlines his pedigree. Uh, It should come up on the screen here. Uh, Paul himself, he had kept all the rituals. He says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as far as righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul is saying if anyone could stand before on that day and stand before the righteous judgment of God and point to the rules and point to the rituals and say, look at me, God, I've done it all. It was him. He was that man. And yet Paul says he has absolutely no confidence in the flesh. He has no confidence in the rules and the rituals because he knows they cannot save. And to press home the point of that the rituals can't save you, 
Uh, Paulie says that even some of those who don't have the ritual circumcision, they obey the law more closely than the people of God do. Verse 27. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, you who are a lawbreaker. Because remember, judgment will come based on what we have done. So merely doing the rituals, merely knowing the law, it cannot save. It cannot save. You, you might have been baptised, confirmed. There are even people in this room who have been ordained for ministry, been through all the rituals. No ritual that we can do will save us on that last day. You see, it started back with those who didn't know God. And we saw in chapter 1 that creation testifies to his character and his power such that they are without excuse. And then there were those moral Gentiles, those sophisticated Greeks who sat in judgment of others. They do the same thing, says Paul. So they find themselves judged by God. And now we have the Jews. Those who know the rules, those who keep the rituals, those who claim to be the people of God. Yet Paul is saying their devotion is only skin deep. And judgment is coming for all people and it will be based on what we have done. And so where is all this heading? Uh, What's the big conclusion? Chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Do you know how, notice how all-encompassing those statements were? Uh, Jews and Gentiles alike. They are all together under the power of sin. And Paul goes on. Uh, in verse 11, and it's just so emphatic. There's, there's, there's really no escaping his words, is there? No one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. And Paul kind of pushes the point to the limit, doesn't he? We are all, without exception, sinful before a holy God. There's no wriggle room. There's no ifs, no buts. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're black. It doesn't matter if you're white. It doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter if you're in prison or if you've never had a parking ticket. It doesn't matter if you go to church every Sunday or if you've never set foot in a church. It doesn't matter if you're a Mormon or a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a Catholic or Baha'i. It doesn't matter if you made it to City on a Hill this morning or if you forgot and you're meeting with the Salsa Congress and sequins down the road. None of that matters. Nothing matters before God. We will all stand before God and give an account for every thought we have had, for every word we have said, for everything that we have done. And it's not going to be pretty. Now, I'm fully aware uh, that as uncomfortable as you all look there and as uncomfortable as I feel up here, this is not a popular idea. Uh, Like like I said, it makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes us sound and look judgmental. 
Uh, the reality that we all fall short of God's judgment. It's an idea that doesn't fly in our world, does it? The spirit of our age is that basically all humans are good, and if left to our own devices, we will do the right things. Uh, basically, we're good. The, the, the problems are with the systems around us. They are the problems. And if we fix the systems, then good humans will get on being good. Uh, so if we get politics right, or if we get education right, then everything will be fine. And if we can deal with issues like poverty and uh, right injustices and bring equality to all of humankind, then everything will be good because we're basically good. We'll all do the right thing. But the problem with that is it's just craziness. History tells us time and time and time again that that is just flat out wrong. In every country, in every age, in every culture, there is always murder. There is always deceit. There is always abuse. There is always conflict. There is always immorality. The problem is always the same. The problem is people. The problem in this world is you and me. Every single one of us. Despite whatever number we might give ourselves out of ten, thinking that we're good, Paul says that we all contribute to the decay and disruption and brokenness of our world because we all sin. And Paul has gone to great lengths to spell this out. This is our third week in a row of looking at the judgment of God. This is what you get if you choose to preach through Romans. You get three chapters of the judgment of God before you go anywhere. But Paul is being methodical. He is being deliberate. He is dotting every I and he is crossing every T and he is closing every loophole so that everyone who reads this book of Romans will be under absolutely no illusion that they will all know that every man, woman and child stands before the judgment of God without excuse. That we all fall short of his standards. That we'll all be called to give an account not based on who we are, or where we live, or what club we belong to, but we will all stand and give an account based on only what we have done and absolutely nothing else. And why does Paul do this? Why is Paul just kind of constantly banging this drum all the way through the first three chapters of Romans? Does Paul want you to feel guilty? Is that what he wants? He wants you to feel horrible inside. Does Paul want you to see God as angry and judgmental? Does Paul want you to lose hope? No, Paul is utterly convinced that the, uh, there is only one hope when we come before God in judgment. That there is only one way we will escape his righteous judgment and that is in the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our only hope on that day. Not that we will be uh, declared righteous because of what we, have been, what we have done. But our only hope is to be declared righteous because of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Remember back to chapter uh, 1 verse 16. Paul started his letter with these powerful words. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So we all stand condemned before God based on what we have done. No ignorance, no moralism, no rules, no ritual, no ethnicity will save us. 
But the good news about Jesus is that he brings salvation to everyone who believes. He brings hope and rescue and righteousness to everyone who believes. And next week, uh, we'll begin to see that more clearly. Next week, we'll begin to see how that is possible. So make sure you come along next week and, and, and bring someone else along with you. Bring them to hear the gospel. You need to hear it. They need to hear it. We need to hear it. Because despite how we might want to rate ourselves, despite the fact we want to give ourselves a seven or a six, even if we think we're a cut above the rest, even if we think, hey, I go to church, hey, I've been baptized, hey, I give to the poor, I read my Bible, I, I, you might even know the Ten Commandments off by heart. Whatever ace you think you've got up your sleeve, we need to hear Paul's warning here so that we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this part of Romans is summed up perfectly in one of my favourite hymns. Uh, we sung it at my wedding, uh, Rock of Ages. It's summed up perfectly by this line, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. If the band want to come up... Um, I'm not going to close in prayer for us uh, this morning. I want this song to be our closing prayer as we hear God's word. Uh, it speaks so clearly of what we have seen here in Romans 2 and 3. No rules, no rituals, nothing we can bring to God. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. So please stand as we sing these words, hear these words. Please stand as we sing and pray them. Not the labours of my hands can fulfil your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save God and you alone. Let's pray and sing together.